Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. That's the voices of red foxes in springtime. And it's not every day that our non-human neighbors make the news, but last month the State Journal reported on four red foxes living around the Glen Golf Park on Madison's near west side. We're going to be talking about that today on A Public Affair. Welcome. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. And I'll tell you a little bit more, first of all, about that story, and we'll get into uh, who we're going to be talking about it with here shortly. The foxes were attracted to the sand underneath the golf course's greens and began digging holes on the greens. And three of them were relocated by the UW Urban Canid Project as part of a new research project aimed at understanding the impacts of moving urban red foxes. After being released on Yahara Hills Golf Course on the city's southeast side, two of the foxes journeyed far to the east, one as far as Oconomowoc. At least one fox, unfortunately, was later killed by a car. That is the most common cause of death for urban foxes. And today we're going to talk about the challenges and rewards of coexistence with wild canids in and around Madison with Dr. David Drake. Dr. Drake is a professor and extension wildlife specialist in the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Since 2014, he's been director of the UW Urban Canid Project, which aims to investigate the ways canids are living in Madison and how we can coexist with them. Welcome to A Public Affair, David. Ah, thank you so much for having me on, Douglas. Yeah, we're great to, grateful to have you here. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. I know some of you out there have experiences or observations of urban foxes, urban coyotes here in the Madison area, or you have a question for our expert guest, David Drake, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Uh, it'd be great to hear from you and hear from your experiences uh, or observations dealing with urban canids here in the Madison area. So we're going to start off, David, today by just having you give us an overview of what we know about foxes and coyotes in the Madison area. How many are there? What draws them here? Yeah, thank you. Those are good questions to start with. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, we're going to talk about urban canids. And, and canid, uh, just to start broadly, uh, is a dog in the dog family. Um, so it's related to your domestic dog, be it a poodle or a golden retriever, whatever it might be. Um, the types of canids we have, wild canids we have in Wisconsin are gray wolves are the largest, and then coyotes are the next largest, red fox, and then just slightly smaller than red fox are gray fox. Um, but the two that we study, we focus on here in Madison, are coyotes and red fox. Um, and so we've been doing this, as you mentioned, since 2014. So we live trap them, and then we uh, fit them with a radio collar, and then we uh, follow them around. The radio collar tells us where these animals are going. And a couple of uh, salient things we found in this project uh, that I think are pretty interesting. Um, if you look at uh, the relationship between coyotes and red fox, and this is um, pretty commonly and, and, um, and uh, consistently reported in the wildlife literature, is in non-urban areas, coyotes are roughly about three times the size of a red fox. And typically where you have uh, competitors in the same space or the same general area, the larger animal typically will outcompete the smaller animal. And so we see that between coyotes and red fox in, in non-urban areas where these uh, two species typically overlap in the types of areas they use, the types of food that they use, things like that. Um, to limit competition in non-urban areas, coyotes will typically either run fox out of the area and or kill the fox. Um, and they are limiting competition for a, a limited amount of food. It might be den sites, whatever the case is. 
So we were really curious to see if that type of a relationship held up in urban areas such as Madison, Wisconsin. And we started studying that. And and to our surprise, we found that um, both coyotes and red fox are able to coexist peacefully, both in the same space and same time. And so we, we were able to describe a relationship that's unique to what we think is an urban area relative to non-urban areas. And um, the current graduate student on the project right now is looking at the mechanisms that allow that coexistence to occur, what we, we uh, um, think is coexistence. And what we think is happening is in urban areas, there's such an abundance of food on the landscape. And when we talk about food, it's the natural foods that these animals would usually eat either in urban or non-urban areas. So it would be things like mice and rats and squirrels and, and uh, rabbits and things like that. So there's a lot of natural food source. And just think about all the rabbits or squirrels in your yard if you live in an urban suburban area. There's a lot of them. Um, and then in addition to the natural food sources, there's a lot of human-provided or anthropogenic food sources, such as our trash cans. Um, it might be our compost bins or piles. Um, it could be uh, if we have domestic uh, animal food out, if we're feeding our pets outside. Sometimes it's your domestic pet that they're feeding on. Um, in addition to uh, these animals, we think of them as carnivores, but they really are omnivores. They are meat eaters, and they also will eat plants. So they eat a lot of things out of your garden and insects and grass and all things like that. And there's just an abundance of food available on the urban landscape. And so what we think is happening is because of that abundance of food, that there's no need to exert energy to compete for something because it's not a limited resource. And so why expend energy to, to exclude a competitor? And we think that's why these two um, typical uh, competitors are able to get along in this urban area. So that's one thing that we, we found we think is pretty cool and unique to urban areas. And, and we can't extrapolate outside of Madison because we haven't studied anything, but we suspect that if somebody were to take this study and, and export it to another urban area, you probably would find similar uh, results. The other thing um, typically is how these animals set up in the urban area. So coyotes typically uh, concentrate most of their time in urban green spaces. So we have a pack of coyotes that lives in the UW urban, uh, excuse me, UW Arboretum. And that is a, a very typical common green space that coyotes will use in urban areas. And that's, that is not necessarily unique to Madison. Other urban coyote studies around the country have found that, uh, that to be the case. Um, red fox, on the other hand, t- are more comfortable in a more developed landscape. So we find them in our neighborhoods a lot of times. And that's why people see red fox typically more than, often than they see coyotes. Um, we've had red fox reported running up uh, State Street. We've had pictures of red fox in the State Journal uh, sitting on the windowsill at the, uh, at the State Capitol, for example. And so they're more comfortable being around people or in closer proximity to to humans and in that built environment, uh, more so than the coyotes are. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about how they're surviving here, um, what they're eating. Um, Is there something you can say about how human activity potentially benefits these animals in particular? Yeah, well, so one of the reasons these animals are, uh, both of these species are in urban areas is because they're very adaptable. Uh, and so they can shift their activity patterns. Sometimes uh, they might be active during the daytimes, but most often they're active at nighttime. And one of the reasons they're active at nighttime is because typically most of us are not. We're either in our houses or apartments or wherever we live and um, sleeping or or reading a book or watch TV, whatever the case might be. And so there's not as many of us out in the landscape to run into. Um, so that's one of the things that's unique about these animals. Um, they're also very opportunistic. And, and so, as I mentioned, they can shift their diet preferences from, uh, you know, whatever's available for them to eat as they're kind of moving through that urban landscape. So that they might eat a rabbit or they might uh, dig through your trash, depending on what's available and things like that. So um, so they're very adaptable like that as well. Um, and they, they uh, benefit from us uh, in a number of ways. Number one, because there is a, just a plethora of food on the landscape. Uh, you know, what we do in our yards, if we put out bird feeders, um, we're feeding the birds, but there's a lot of seed that drops to the ground. So that uh, increases the amount of food available for mice and uh, voles and things like that, which are, are the staple for um, both coyotes and red fox or can be a, a pretty common food source for coyotes and red fox. So that's one of the things. Um, you know, in urban areas, um, typically we don't shoot at these animals. It's not legal to discharge a firearm. Uh, out in rural areas, um, 
uh, if you are on your own property and it's legal for you to discharge a firearm, uh, you can kill a coyote any time of the year that you want to. And, and most people, because coyotes have kind of a, a bad reputation for uh, and have had a bad reputation through history, that a lot of people do shoot at, at coyotes. So, so there's a, 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 a limited amount of mortality or, or one uh, factor of mortality is removed from the toolbox because uh, that, that mortality factor is not available in urban areas. Um, because these animals are, are, there's a lot of food for them available. They typically, most of the animals we catch, well, not most of all the animals we've caught, are in really good nutritional health. And typically, the more healthy you are nutritionally, the more healthy you are from an immunological standpoint. So these animals are, are generally healthy because of the food that we, ha- uh, we have on the urban landscape that we provide directly and or indirectly. Yeah, um, you mentioned just there uh, the reputation that these animals have, particularly um, coyotes, um, which in Western culture uh, certainly, like you said, have uh, somewhat of a bad reputation mm-hmm. or a mixed reputation among many Native traditions, a revered animal, yep. right? Um, yep. But uh, how does that cultural aspect or the cultural reputation and values associated with these animals influence how people interact with them and, and maybe also how you do your work or approach thinking about how to study these animals in urban settings. Yeah, for sure. And, and when we say interact, we really don't want them to make physical contact or, or have any physical interaction with these animals. When we talk about interaction, we want people to understand that these animals are on the landscape with us. Um, if you see one of these animals, we want you to, to be able to have uh, enough of the tools to understand what is normal behavior from a coyote or a red fox, what's abnormal behavior that you may need to report to the police or to a Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources county biologist or something like that. Um, but really, from an interaction standpoint, we want people to, to enjoy seeing them on the landscape, understand how cool it is to have them here, and, and but enjoy them from a safe distance. And then after that, we want them to haze the animal or to scare the animal so that we can maintain a healthy fear of humans in uh, both coyotes and red fox and really any urban species of wildlife uh, that that shares this landscape with us. Because if we can maintain that fear of humans, then we have a positive coexistence between uh, the coyotes and red fox and humans because the coyotes and red fox, when they see a human being, rather than come toward us, they're going to move away from us or at least not continue to move toward us. So that's one of the things we want. Um, and as you mentioned there, you know, in, in uh, certain cultures, especially in the Native American culture, um, coyotes and red fox have a very uh, revered place in that culture. And it's, it's a, you know, the stories and, and uh, the folklore are fascinating and really interesting. And we want people to, you know, have really an awe about these animals, not really a fear of them. And it is interesting amongst the public, you know, typically, generally everybody likes red fox. Um, they associate them as being cute and, and they're relatively a small animal so that they don't, they're not as fearful from a physical standpoint. Um, and I, you know, other than uh, occasionally stealing a chicken out of the back of your chicken coop, they don't have that negative uh, connotation that coyotes do. Coyotes, on the other hand, you know, they've had a lot of bad press from Wiley E. Coyote to, you know, all the, uh, the coyotes in, in literature and things like that. So people have more of a love-hate relationship with coyotes. And, and partly it's because coyotes do occasionally attack people's uh, domestic dogs, for example. Um, we don't have this issue here in Wisconsin, thankfully, but if you go to Southern California, Coyotes do attack people on a relatively re- uh, regular basis. Um, in addition to coyotes are, you know, about the size of a German shepherd, and, and they are a little bit foreboding from a physical standpoint for for people. And so that's one of the things we're trying to do is to communicate to the public about, you know, what's what's normal behavior? Um, when should you be alarmed? When is it okay to, to just let that animal pass through your yard or, or, you know, pass through your neighborhood and, and everything will be okay for both you and the animal? We have a caller on the line uh, with a question about foxes and rabbits. So uh, just to build on, on what we're talking about here, um, Doug, you're uh, live on a public affair. Uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, I have found two um, rabbit carcasses without the heads. Ah. It's just the shoulders down, and they're like hidden like under a shrub or one was under my son's car tire. And if my dog gets them, it's almost impossible to get that thing away from her. But uh, I was just wondering, I'd heard maybe it was a screech owl that was doing that, or if that is, because we have gotten fox on our, you know, our door cam before. Sure. So we've, we've seen them. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it is typically when you find headless carcasses, that is typically uh, the result of an owl, uh, owl predation. So, and it could be a screech owl, but we also, uh, I'm assuming you're in the Madison area, um, but we also have great horned owls and, and barred owls here, which will all do that. And so typically owls will decapitate their prey, uh, eat the brain case, and then leave the, the uh, carcass for another animal to, to scavenge. And uh, so another animal, I'm assuming if you found the body, it was not a fox or a coyote or a raccoon or thing like that because they would have eaten at least some of that body. I'm, I'm assuming some other animal maybe drug it uh, part of the way and, and maybe had chewed on it but didn't eat the the, um, the carcass to the extent that maybe a, a red fox would have. But um, but yeah, I think what you what you saw were the remains of an owl uh, owl kill. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today about urban foxes and coyotes with Dr. David Drake, professor and extension wildlife specialist at UW-Madison. And we have another caller on the line with a comment and question. Wally, you're live on A Public Affair. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, So I have seen in my time uh, development take foxes away from uh, from landscapes and also poison being put out, being a problem uh, in the system. So that's just my personal observation. Uh, my question is, um, how do wolves interact over time, and what's the interaction between foxes and wolves and coyotes? Yeah, hi, Wally. Thank you for the question. Um, let me just comment quickly on your um, observation about development and the poisons. Um, so these animals, uh, both coyotes and red fox, are very adaptable to development. And, and so when the, uh, maybe new development is occurring or they're, they're developing the landscape, uh, so they've got uh, the heavy equipment on the, on the landscape, um, maybe they're, they're, they're building houses or office buildings or whatever the case might be, the fox and the coyotes may shy away from that area when the activity is occurring, but they're probably back in that area at nighttime. And very quickly after that area is, is done being developed, Fox and cows would be back in, into that area if they used it prior to the development. So um, that that uh, avoidance you might see uh, is likely short term, um, and it also might be likely only during the time of, of activity during the, the daytime. But at nighttime, they might still be back in that area um, for some duration of time over the course of that night. Um, and in terms of poisoning. I'm also aware of some of this occurring, and we strongly, obviously, discourage this because it's a uh, it's illegal for one thing, it's inhumane for a second thing, and, and it's unethical for a third reason. And we could get into some other reasons you shouldn't be doing this as well. But there is, um, we think, a, a, a decent amount of indirect uh, poisoning going on through the use of anticoagulant rodenticides, and so these would be poisons that are put out to control mice and rats and things like that, and. And some colleagues and I are trying to find some money right now to look at the extent of anticoagulant poisoning, uh, anticoagulant rodenticide poisoning, and how it flows up the uh, food chain, especially to some of the top predators like uh, coyotes and red fox and things of that nature. So there is some poisoning both directly and indirectly. uh, Unfortunately, it does occur with these animals. Um, In terms of your question about the interaction between wolves and coyote and red fox, so very similar to the, the um, relationship I described in non-urban areas between coyotes and red fox, where these two animals are competitors. Uh, they overlap in the types of uh, landscape they use. They overlap in the types of food they use. You see that same overlap between coyotes and wolves. Um, and obviously wolves are not necessarily what we would consider an urban canid. They're not a, a, an urban animal. Um, but there are plenty of places throughout uh, Wisconsin where wolves exist that coyotes also could exist. Um, and typically what we see there is that same type of relationship. But because coyotes are forty, uh, roughly 40 pounds for an adult grown male, that's the, the, the maximum weight. For a wolf, maximum uh, adult male wolf, you might be 100, 110 pounds. So those wolves are much larger than the coyotes. And because of that size difference, um, they will run the coyotes out of the area, and if the coyotes don't respect that, they certainly will kill the coyotes to, uh, to uh, limit competition, very similar to how the coyotes run uh, the red fox out of an area or will kill red fox to limit competition in non-urban areas. Thanks very much for the question, Wally. Um, 
And Wally's question uh, brings up something I was thinking about as you were talking, David, as well. Um, it's the relationship between the population of these animals and uh, development or, or, you know, building on the landscape. Uh, is there a correlation between urban expansion and population in foxes and, and coyotes? Can you say one way or another whether it diminishes or uh, increases their population? Yeah. Um, so I can't say one way or the other. And I, I apologize for not answering your question up front. Front, you asked about the number of, of coyotes around oh, Fox no Valley in yeah, Madison great as well. So maybe I'll, I'll address that now as part of the answer here. Um, so <clears throat> we don't know uh, exactly how many coyotes and red fox we have in the, in the city of Madison, um, but that is a very common question. And when we started our project, um, for the first couple, two, three years or so, we ear-tagged every animal we caught with a unique uh, color combination of tags. And, and one of the things we do, uh, we started an iNaturalist page uh, in 2015, and, and an iNaturalist is a uh, citizen science reporting portal on the internet web. And so we created our uh, UW Urban Cage, Canyon Project specific page under that iNaturalist umbrella, and we will ask people to report sightings of coyotes and red fox to that page. So anybody listening today, if you see a coyote or a red fox, please, if you have not already reported it to iNaturalist, um, we, we would appreciate you continuing to report it. But if you have not ever used our iNaturalist page, we would appreciate you Googling iNaturalist and UW Urban Canyon Project and then registering to be an iNaturalist user. It takes less than 30 seconds. And then anytime you see a red fox or a coyote, please report that sighting because it is very, very helpful to us um, from a research standpoint. Um, so... Uh, the question is about how many fox or coyote we have in the city. So we started ear tagging them because we were trying to set up uh, a mark recapture uh, uh, estimate for a, a statistically relevant population estimate. And unfortunately, on our iNaturalist page, we were only getting about 4% of the coyotes or red fox people would see <clears throat> with, the, uh, with the ear tags. So we weren't getting enough reportings to actually develop a, a population, population estimate. And then the other thing that we discovered is typically when these animals uh, die and they have a radio collar, we go find them and, and conduct a necropsy on them or an animal autopsy. And one of the things we discovered is uh, for some of our animals where we were actually ear tagging them, that we were creating necrosis or, or kind of an infection uh, around that uh, ear tag site. And because we were not getting any useful information from the ear tags and it seemed like we were causing some harm for at least some of the animals, we stopped ear tagging. Um, so we really don't have any idea how many animals live in Madison. Um, however, if you look at our iNaturalist page, um, and you can, if you go to our iNaturalist page, you can see an interactive map, and you'll see them all over the city that they've been reported. And I think uh, I looked last week, I think we had about 1,400 reports of coyotes and red fox on our iNaturalist page. Clearly, there aren't, there aren't 1,400 coyotes and red fox that live in, in Madison. So the same animal is being mm -hmm. seen and reported by multiple people. But it still is an index, and it's a pretty. I think we've got a pretty healthy population of coyotes and red fox here. So to get to your question, Douglas, about if, if we have more uh, development or less development, um, it probably does not affect these animals one way or the other. And as a matter of fact, the more development we have, probably the more red fox and coyotes that development will support, um, because these animals are not negatively affected by uh, urbanization they seem to benefit from it because there's additional food sources on the landscape for them. And, and if you look at any urban population, and it could be white-tailed deer, Canada geese, American crow, coyotes, red fox, it doesn't matter, that typically in urban areas, the population density or the number of individuals in that species within a certain area or a bounded area, that population density typically is higher in urban areas than if you were to see <clears throat> that same animal in non-urban areas. So the population density of deer, for example, in, in rural areas is typically lower than the population density of deer in urban areas. And, and the same thing for coyotes and red fox because these animals benefit from uh, living in and amongst us. And is that true for uh, coyotes you mentioned require a little bit more open space than the red foxes? Is that true? Is there some sort of sweet spot, in other words? Like, does a very urban, uh, densely developed urban landscape, is that totally prohibited for them, like East Washington Avenue, for example, you know? Yeah, that's a SMS. really good question, and I would say no. I think if you had asked me this 20 years ago, I'd say probably. But um, a colleague of mine and a friend of mine um, at Ohio State University, Stan Garrett, he started the uh, uh, Urban Coyote Project in Chicago in the year 2000, and it's the longest-running and uh, urban coyote project 
anywhere in the world. And, and obviously coyotes are primarily a North American uh, species, so they're not native to anywhere else around. But, but Stan started this project in the year 2000. He started catching and radio collaring coyotes on kind of the outer skirts of Chicago, but in the forest preserve areas. Mm-hmm. He is now reporting that there are coyote packs that live in the inner loop of Chicago. I mean, they live their entire life in the inner loop of Chicago. And obviously in the inner loop, you've got you know Grant Park down there and you've got some bigger green spaces, but you also have a tremendous amount of impervious surface and buildings and, and, and things like that and people. Mm-hmm. And these coyotes are able to live down there because they're so dang gum adaptable and opportunistic. And so, twenty years ago, I probably would say, "Yeah," but now I'd say, "No, I don't. Th- I don't think so. I think these animals will adapt." Um, and same for fox. You know, we don't know about a lot about urban red fox in North America. And as a matter of fact, I think we were the first group uh, to start researching urban red fox in North America um, back in twenty fourteen. But if you look at Europe, for example, they've reported fox in cities like London and and some cities in Poland and Germany since the early nineteen thirties. And and fox seem to be a long-standing urban adapted species and do quite well in cities. And, and obviously, London is a very, very large city, and they do, you know, the, and they're throughout London, and they do quite well there. So I, I don't think that uh, any amount of urbanization is uh, it, it may have, uh, affect them to some extent, but I don't think it's going to have any, any large negative effect on them. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking about urban foxes and coyotes with Dr. David Drake, professor and extension wildlife specialist in the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We'd love to have you join our conversation. If you have an experience with coyotes, foxes here in the Madison area, or a question about their behavior, human interactions with them, their populations, do give us a call. The number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So, David, um, I'd like to dive into uh, your research a little bit more here. You've done a great job of sort of weaving it in as we've talked generally about coyotes and foxes in the Madison area. And we can maybe return to that recent study sure. as well of the uh, foxes over at, uh, on the near west side at the golf course there, the Glen Golf Park. Um, but tell us a little bit more about how you go about this research, your methods for trapping and handling animals. Yeah. 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 Well, a, a couple of things I want to emphasize before we get into the specifics mm-hmm. is number one, um, <clears throat> everything we do is uh, overseen and approved by a couple of different bodies. So um, the University of Wisconsin has uh, four institutional animal carriers committees. So um, our our project and our research is approved uh, and annually updated by um, the College of Ag and Life Sciences Animal Carriers Committee. So uh, we have approval for that. So, and that, uh, when we get approval, we have to demonstrate that there's a purpose for our research, and we have to demonstrate that uh, the welfare of these animals is first and foremost in our mind. And so in order for approval, um, we've met both of those uh, requirements. Um, the other thing is we have a, a scientific research uh, permit issued to us by the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources because the the Wisconsin DNR, Department of Natural Resources, they have the statutory statutory authority for management of uh, both red fox and coyotes. And so we abide by all the the rules and regulations that they require of us and and that is required of us in order to hold that scientific research permit. So I want to make those two things very clear up front that we're not just a bunch of rogue people out (laughs) wandering around catching these animals. Um, and in addition to all of that, obviously we have a lot of training, you know, scientific training and, and uh, wildlife uh, ecology training, animal handling training, and things like that. So yeah, so when we catch these animals, we typically trap uh, between October and uh, March, so typically in the winter, and we do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, there's not as many people out and about in the winter, so we don't have to worry about interacting with as many people and, and people encountering our traps and things like that. Um, we also, in the winter, if we have a, a traditional winter, uh, we have snow down, and that allows us to see where these animals are tracking, and then we will set our traps based on where their tracks are going, and, and so that is very helpful to us when we have snow. Um, but there's two ways you can catch these animals. Uh, so we, we can either catch them around the neck using what's called a cable restraint trap, and a cable restraint trap is very similar to a choke collar you might use on your dog when you're walking your dog. And as your dog is pulling against that leash, you hear the dog kind of breathing heavily. 
Um, but clearly it's not hurting the dog because the dog continues to pull against the leash. If it was hurting the dog, it would back off that choke collar. But when the dog does back off and heal, then that choke collar relaxes around the, the neck. And, and that's very similar to the type of trap that we use, the cable restraint. It's a piece of airplane cable that's looped back onto itself, um, and it is a live trap, so it's not, not going to kill the animal. It doesn't hurt the animal. Um, and when the animal first gets caught, puts its head through the, the loop, and, and the loop closes around the neck, very similar. The animal's going to fight for a little bit to try to get out of that trap, and that, that uh, restraint or the cable is going to tie it around the neck. But when the animal stops fighting, then there's what's called a relaxing washer on that, and then that loop will start to back off the neck, and it loosens around the neck. So very similar to a cable restraint. So one way is to use a cable, or excuse me, similar to a, a um, choke collar you might use. So one way is to catch these animals around the neck using a choke collar, uh, choke collar, <laughs> using a cable restraint. Uh-huh. The other way is to catch the animal by the foot using a foothold trap, and that is a, a, a double jaw trap that you would actually bury under the ground. The cable restraint trap is depending on the animal, but it's a certain uh, uh, distance above the ground level. Um, I want to emphasize, because people have ideas about trapping and they have connotations about trapping, neither one of these traps hurts the animal. Okay, it, 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 they, uh, None of these traps will hurt the animal. And our intent is we do not want to hurt the animal because we want this animal to live as long a life as possible so we can collect a lot of data. But we also, you know, we understand that we are impacting these animals and we don't want to have any more impact on these animals than is necessary to conduct our research. Um, so those are the two types of traps we typically would use. We only use on our project cable restraints, and, and we only use cable restraints for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, in the wintertime, when the ground is frozen or the soil is frozen, you have to dig these uh, the, the foothold trap under the, under the ground and bury it under the soil. It's just too hard when the soil is frozen. So that's one reason. Um, number two is uh, we have, to our knowledge, we have not caught a domestic dog in one of our traps. But if we do, and again, the dog is not going to get hurt by either the foothold or the cable restraint. However, um, if we catch a dog, it is much easier for a pet owner to get their dog's head out of a cable restraint trap than it is out of their foot out of a foothold trap. Because with a foothold trap, they have to depress some springs to get the jaws off the foot. Um, and that is going to be more traumatic for the pet owner than just releasing the, the relaxing washer on the cable restraint. Um, the other th- reason is um, on the cable restraint, we've got about maybe a, I don't know, a 10 to 12 inch diameter that this animal has to hit or, or put its head through. On the foothold, we've got maybe about an inch and a half or a two inch diameter. So we improve our success rate because we have more surface area for that animal to actually interact with the trap on a cable restraint. So those are the reasons we use cable restraints. Um, once we've got the end, so once we set the traps, uh, then uh, we check the traps every 24 hours, once every 24 hours, according to Wisconsin uh, DNR trapping regulations. We, we follow all the trapping regulations. Um, so we check traps every 24 hours. Usually we catch animals at night. Almost 100% of the time we catch animals at night. So they're not in the, the trap very long until we catch them, until we check the traps in the morning. We, we're usually out by 7 in the morning checking the traps. If we catch an animal, then we uh, will restrain the head using a pull noose. And then another person uh, will go behind uh, to one of the back legs, and we will hand inject a double sedative. So right now, we've been using ketamine and xylazine, and we dose the animal based on an estimated weight. So we sedate the animal, let the sedative work for about 10 minutes. So we back once we uh, inject the animal, we back away for about 10 minutes, let the animal get sedated. And after the animal's properly sedated and we're convinced it is, then we kind of do a, a once over of the animal. We look at the eyes, the teeth. Um, we look at the body condition, all of that. Once we've done that, we'll put a muzzle on the animal to, in case the animal uh, wakes up from the sedation, we can safely resedate it without worrying about getting bit. We weigh the animal. Um, we Early on, we were taking blood and, and swabbing the nasal and rectal passages because we were doing a study on diseases. Um, once we published that, we stopped taking blood and, and swabbing. But we're now swabbing and taking blood again because we're cooperating with a couple other research groups who are looking at um, COVID in these animals. And we're also looking for high path avian influenza in fox in particular. So we, we draw blood and swab. And once we've done that, then we will tailor fit the collar to the animal. And once we've done all of that, we take the muzzle off the animal. We'll give the animal a different drug to reverse the sedative. And then we stay with the animal until it's up and moving on its own power and moves away from the trap site. So we, we essentially release the animal, we trap the animal. And then after we've done that, then it's just a matter of, of following the animal using these satellite collars that we put on them. And, and um, we get eight 
hourly fixes every 24 hours for Kyo. So we get four hourly fixes every 24 hours for Red Fox. And the reason we take half the, the fixes for Red Fox is simply because they don't have as big of a battery pack because they're a smaller animal. They can't carry as heavy a collar, as heavy a battery. And we're trying to stretch each collar for two years um, worth of battery use. Yeah. So thanks for that really yes. detailed description of the, the process. <laughs> Too um, detailed, maybe. Well, I'm, I'm curious to have you follow up with a little bit more now subjective response to that. You've yeah. been doing this for many years. Many people, though, will never have the opportunity to come this close to these animals, yeah. to handle them, to feel them. What's it feel like to be this close to the, these animals? And uh, how has it affected your relationship with them over the years? Yeah, it is awesome. I, and, and I should say, even though a lot of people don't, we do invite the public to come out trapping okay. with us. And, and we, we uh, d- haven't done so much post-COVID, but we are going to start again next year because I've got a new graduate student coming on and, and uh, one of her part of her project is going to be evaluating people's uh, response to trapping. So uh, we will be inviting the public to come trapping with us again next year and, and for the n- next couple of years. Um, but with that being said, you know, one of the reasons I went into wildlife ecology is because I just think wildlife are awesome all the way around. And I, I, I'm just fascinated by just about any animal and, and how they make a living and things like that. And, you know, just like people are passionate about, I don't know, accounting or they're passionate about medicine or, or you know, construction or whatever your, your uh, avocation is, you're, you're passionate about that. And I'm lucky that m- my passion is wildlife. So I think it's really, really cool. And um, I think, you know, I, I've known about Kyle's Red Fox, but I, I haven't known all the intricacies of them until we started this project. And, and they are just fascinating animals. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and it's fun trying to trap them. It's fun to, outs- you know, to see if we can outsmart them. Um, so every morning we we check traps and, and, you know, most mornings we don't catch anything. And But it's kind of like us, it's that anxiety or anticipation of Christmas morning. You get up and and you're waiting to see what you got, you know, and and then so we're disappointed when we don't catch something. But then the next morning, it's like you forgot the day before and you get out there and you're all excited about doing it again. And when you actually catch an animal, it's just it's awesome to to be able to see them up close and 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 respect them and and uh, just watch them. Do you feel like the process of tracking and trying to figure out how to trap them has enhanced your appreciation of their intelligence? Uh, what have you learned about their their intelligence through doing this? Yeah, well, I think any animal is pretty intelligent. You know, it, it's especially uh, when they're in their own environment. I mean, they've got to be intelligent enough to stay alive and, and live and reproduce and all of that kind of stuff. But the one thing is I, I ride my bike to work. I, and I, I ride my bike quite a bit um, year round. I'm kind of a utilitarian biker. Mm-hmm. So um, w- what it has done for me is I, I used to ride past places uh, prior to 2014 and didn't think much about it. Now I ride past places like, huh, that might be a good place to start trapping. Or I wonder if there was a fox or coyote that's been through there last night or, or something like that. So I look at the landscape much differently now mm-hmm. than, than I did uh, prior to this project. So it's opened up your eyes and for it sure. says to see it more like a fox or a, yeah. a coyote might, might for see sure. it. Are there places that you could share with us that are, you know, great places to try to see a fox or a coyote here in Madison or where are their haunts? Yeah. Well, I think, again, as I mentioned, um, you you know, with the exception of uh, the isthmus, uh, coyotes are probably pretty much everywhere else or or travel everywhere else throughout Madison. They may not live there, but they probably travel through a good part of Madison. And for fox, just about anywhere in Madison, you can see them. But what I would suggest is to go to our iNaturalist page. So again, you could just Google iNaturalist and UW Urban Canid Project. So C-A-N-I-D is in Delta Project. Um, and that you don't have to be a, a member of iNaturalist, uh, but you can see that interactive map and you can see where people are citing them. So, but, uh, you know, and, and again, nighttime is probably preferred, although we do get reports a lot of times of people seeing fox in their yard just sunning themselves, or they're just curled up and laying in the sun, resting. Um, you don't see that so much with coyotes, but you will see coyotes out at night, and sometimes people uh, in an early morning, uh, late afternoon, early evening, they'll see coyotes starting to move uh, as they're waking up and getting ready to go out for the night. Um, you'll see them. But, you know, again, those urban green spaces. So coyotes uh, uh, typically are in Owen Park, O-W-E-N. They're at the Lakeshore Nature Preserve, um, uh, UW Arboretum. They're at some of the parks on the east side of Madison. 
Um, same for Fox. You know, we, uh, Fox, you'll see them throughout neighborhoods, just about any neighborhood in the, in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I, know, I know I've seen and heard uh, coyotes over along Milwaukee Street, yep. Sherry Park there, and yep. then the other side of the street where the city has the big open space, the Voight Farm. Yep, the Voight Farm. There's yeah. a pack that lives there right now. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people are seeing uh, coyotes over by Voight Farm quite often. I've been wondering how the, the new uh, development project might, might impact them. It, it probably yeah. won't impact them yeah. too much. You know, they, they'll, they'll still eke out a living over there. And there's plenty of other green spaces yep. also uh, along that little river corridor too. Yep. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today about urban foxes and coyotes with Dr. David Drake, professor and extension wildlife specialist in the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at UW-Madison. There's still time to give us a call if you'd like to share an experience with urban foxes, coyotes here in the Madison area, or you have a question, the number is 608-256-2001. Extension 9. So, David, I mentioned at the top of the hour this most recent study that was in the State Journal last month um, focused on uh, relocating or translocating uh, some foxes who were um, digging up greens over at the um, Glen Golf Park on Madison's near west side. Tell us more about this project and what you've learned from it so far. Yeah, so we um, actually translocated. I mean, I'm going to use the term translocated. So translocation means that uh, the animal was was caught in its home range or its territory, and it was released outside of its territory. Uh, relocated typically means that the animal was caught inside its territory or home range and released inside its territory or home range. So again, uh, re- relocation may make more sense to, to the, the public, so we can certainly use that word, but there is a difference between the two of them. So we actually translocated eight red fox last fall, and um, three of them we had got I, we had gotten contacted by the, by the Glenway Golf Course in the Madison's West Side. They had just spent I, I think one point three million dollars or something like that. They got a gift of money to completely redo the entire golf course. So one of the things they did for all nine of the greens is they made sand-based greens. So I think the top two feet of the soil was all sand. I'm not a golfer. I'm also not an agronomist, so I'm not. A, I don't. I'm not sure what the benefit of having sand-based greens is, but for for whatever reason, it was a big deal. Uh, however, there was a fox family. We think out of the Regent neighborhood that had four kits, and those four kits were coming over to the Glenway Golf Course, which is not too far from the Regent neighborhood, and they were digging on these uh, newly sodded or newly seeded greens uh, almost nightly. And so in the morning, the greenskeepers have to go out. They have to repair all the holes, try to, you know, get the grass to grow there again and things like that. And so we tried a number of of different management techniques to discourage them from digging on the greens, to discourage them from using the golf course. And we just couldn't uh, get anything to stick. So ultimately, uh, and and I should say that the city of Madison and Madison Parks owns that golf course. And the city of Madison and Madison Parks have been incredible partners and supporters of our project. So when they asked us to help them, by all means, we were going to help them because they, they've been very, very good to us. Um, so one of the things they said, well, could we, could we move these fox? And I said, well, let's think about this. Uh, let me look into the literature and see, you know, if people have done this before, what lessons they learned, you know, what we need to do. So I looked in the literature and, there, and there's no information on translocating urban red fox. And so I said, well, let's give it a go. You know, it will maybe solve your problem. Uh, A second benefit is we can develop some new information that maybe we can publish for other people to use. And so we we, uh, trapped, live trapped three of the four kits. And uh, they said, well, I said, where are we going to move these animals to? And they said, well, why don't we move them to Yahara Golf Course on the east side of Madison? And I said, well, it's still a golf course, right? Isn't it going to cause the same Uh problem? And they said, well, not necessarily because the golf greens at Yahara are a different soil profile. So we move them over to the Yahara Golf Course. And to our surprise, they did not stick around. So uh, of the three that we moved over there, two of the collars worked. One of the animals with the collar that we never got any location data on the collar. So we don't know where this, the one of the three animals went. But the the two of the three that we know about, the first one that we relocated, he took off uh, about 30 miles east and went to Azatlan State Park, park it over by Johnson Creek, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, area, almost due east down I-94. And then the, the, the second one uh, we relocated, he took off and is now in Oconomowoc, um, which is about, I don't know, 43 miles kind of east, northeast, something like that. 
Um, so we were a little surprised about that, that they both they were both trapped in urban areas. We released them in urban areas, and they both left for relatively non-urban areas. Um, then we, uh, in addition to this, we got contacted by the Dane County Wildlife Rehab Center uh, here, and they had taken in, I think, 31 red fox last summer to treat for mange because last year was an awful year for mange. Um, Just to clarify yeah. for folks what mm-hmm. that is? Yeah, so mange is a, uh, it's a, 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 um, derm- a dermal disease or typically it's caused by mites. There's different types of mange, but the most common is sarcoptic mange. It's caused by mites that get under the skin, and it causes the animals to itch a lot, and it also causes the hair to fall out. Um, and it can also create infection because the animals, the animals are itching, they're opening their skin. And it, it is just a horrendous thing to have. I don't, if you've ever had swimmer's itch or, um, or um, oh, I, oh, shoot, I forgot what it's called. Down south, you get a lot with these, uh, these little chiggers. Chiggers, yeah, mm-hmm. which is exactly what I'm thinking about. It's like that. It is miserable. I've had both of them, and it is absolutely miserable. But that's what mange is, essentially, for fox. So the Wildlife Rehab Center had, had treated these five of these animals for mange, and they said, you know, where's a good place for us to put these animals? And we said, would you mind if we radio collar them? And so we ended up translocating eight animals. Um, and so the, the of the five that we did at, uh, from the Dane County Rehab Center, we put three of them at Warner Park. Um, one left and is up in Marquette County, which mm-hmm. is about 57 miles away at Buffalo Lake. One is bumming around Sun Prairie, and then one died over by the airport. And then we released two at Edna Taylor State, uh, Edna Taylor Conservation Park mm-hmm. on the east side. Uh, one went down toward uh, Utica, just northeast of Stoughton, and died down there after a while, after about three months. And then one uh, got hit by car within about 48 hours after releasing her. So um, so they kind of scattered. And it was really interesting to us that, that essentially all these animals left the urban area, which was really interesting. And... I'd say uh, probably I think it's five or six of them got killed by cars, um, which is not unusual because that's the primary form of mortality for all these urban canids. Um, And it's also not unusual that uh, these males took off because there is dispersal for young of the year males, uh, which all these animals or most of these animals were. So that wasn't unusual either. But what was unusual is that they left the urban area and uh, that we had relatively high mortality. Uh, so that raises a couple of questions for me about the mortality mm-hmm. and, and the vehicles. Um, first of all, if people are really concerned about um, canids and yep. they want to help their populations, what can they do to help them? Is the vehicles play a role there? And um, then second of all, uh, briefly, um, are, are foxes and, and coyotes a bit, uh, able to evolve some capacity to uh, respond to uh, vehicles. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so the number one mortality factor for our study animals in urban areas, and, and this is true for most urban studies, is is vehicle mortality. They get hit by vehicles. Um, and so as a driver, you know, and this is true for anything. I mean, you're not just hitting fox and coyotes. You could hit deer. You could hit turkeys, canned geese, all sorts of things. Just as a driver, you know, obviously be as observant as you possibly can be. Be as reactive as you possibly can be. So if you see an animal crossing the road, just be aware of it and, and try to break, uh, things like that. Um, these animals are adaptive, and we have seen fox and coyote, but we see this with deer as well, and we see this with other animals, that they actually will look both ways before they cross a road um, because they learn to avoid traffic so or try to avoid traffic as much as they can. Um, and, and my current graduate student who's on this project right now, in addition to looking at uh, the food resources these animals have available, uh, she's also looking at road crossing study. And so what one of the things we're, we're looking at is um, it, these animals have different road densities or amounts of roads they have to cross in their home range or in their territory. And the question that uh, the graduate student Morgan is asking is the more roads that an animal has to cross, does that make them more susceptible to getting hit by a car or does that make them more experienced in crossing roads and therefore more successful in crossing roads? So um, we're, we're trying to figure that out right now. That'll be interesting to see uh, over the over time how that evolves. Yeah, get some answers to that for sure. That question. We just have a few minutes left, David. Uh, this has been fascinating, and it's so great hearing about uh, the stories you can tell us from your your almost a decade here working on this project. Another long term question, of course, on many people's minds is how the changing climate is impacting um, not only people but, of course, animals around us that we live with. Um, 
any sense right now of how the changing climate is impacting urban canids and maybe want to talk about other synanthropes, animals that, that live with people as well? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, you know, for the most part, urban wildlife probably is not going to be impacted at all uh, or very, very little by climate change. Um, simply because in that urban envelope, we already have a heated climate. And, and if you look at um, the ambient temperature in urban areas, it typically is warmer than and the ambient temperature in non-urban areas simply because we've got so much so so much impervious surface that's soaking that solar energy into the impervious surface buildings that are reflecting that energy uh, solar energy and things like that um, and so these animals are probably not going to be impacted at all if very little uh, unlike you know snowshoe hares or or some other animals or where you see range expansion for some other animals or perhaps range contraction for other animals based on a warming climate. So I, I don't think that it's going to impact them, uh, especially coyotes and fox, um, really much at all. Mm-hmm. Any any thoughts at this point? Maybe you want to add anything about, I know you have expertise in other animals as well, other animals that live with us and how they're doing? Um, well, I think it's pretty interesting. You know, we're seeing sandhill cranes now starting to get into urban areas. That's kind of cool. I think we're going to see, um, well, badgers are on the outskirts of Madison. You know, there was a badger a few years ago in Middleton at Pope Farm Park. So that's not too far from an urban area. Um, uh, armadillos are going to be up here, I think, pretty soon. I think armadillos. Seriously? Uh, well, I think they're as far north as Missouri now, and armadillos are native to Mexico. Naturally spreading populations. Yeah, naturally spreading populations, yep. Um, you know, possums are above their their northern range. Cardinals are above their northern range. So, um, you know, in Chicago, you've got uh, populations of monk parakeets, which are not native to Chicago, and they're more of a subtropical bird. But they survive the winters of Chicago because um, of that increased ambient temperature, but they also nest around these great big electrical transformers, which are giving off heat all the time. So, you know, animals are very, very adaptive, especially those that, that live uh, in these urbanized areas. Yeah. Um, I think it's been a wonderful way for us to learn about that as we listen to your research on, on foxes and coyotes and a, a nice positive environmental story, yeah, right? For to, sure. to see how people can coexist. What keeps you going as a researcher just to wrap up here today? And what are you excited about continuing to learn as you continue your work? Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I've, I cannot believe I get paid to do this most of the days. I feel so fortunate to be able to do this. And so it's just nice to do that. It's always nice to, I mean, we, we went to science, all of us who go into science. We go into science to learn new stuff um, and, and um, share that with people. And so that's really fun. You know, tomorrow we're going to go, my grad student and I are going to go out to Owen Park uh, all day and we're going to talk to, I, I don't know, school-age children uh-huh. all day and share our project. And that's really fun. I love sharing this project with the public. The public has embraced this project, has great interest in this project, and it, it is just wonderful to interface with the public because uh, uh, and be able to share all this with them as well. Yeah, I can hear that enthusiasm in your account of the project today. Thanks so much for being with us. I've been talking to Dr. David Drake, Professor and Extension Wildlife Specialist in the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at UW-Madison. Thanks again for coming in, David. Thank you so much, Douglas. And you've been listening to A Public Affair here on WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Jade, filling in today for Andrew Thomas, uh, as well as producing the show, and our news director, as always, Shally Pittman. Thank you, listeners, for joining us again here on WORT Community-Powered Radio 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it. In fact, it's a good thing.